Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians. Philippians, it's found in the New Testament uh, well after Acts and Romans and well before Hebrews and Revelations, about four chapters long, this uh, book that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to one of the early churches that was established in the city of Philippi, surprise, surprise, uh, at the northern part of the Aegean Sea it was where this place was located, uh, connected to the Mediterranean Sea. And as we look at this uh, passage today, we are, believe it or not, reaching the halfway point through our uh, fall series in this book of Philippians. And it's a good place, I think, for us to pause and to talk not just about the passage that's coming up. I'll say a few words of that, about that as we prepare to look at it this morning. But to really talk about what it is for a minute that we are doing each week. As you know from our Sunday school classes for adults and children and life groups and other things, we're, we're definitely not opposed or averse to doing a study that's based on a topic or working through various passages that relate to a particular theme. But one of the things that we try to do regularly on Sunday mornings, which honestly is a little more difficult than maybe other approaches, is to walk through verse by verse, section by section, a particular book of the Bible. It's sometimes easier to grab a passage that would be particularly catchy or would obviously relate to something uh, intangible in our lives and sometimes a little more challenging to work through a book of the Bible. But I, I hope that, and I say this again as we're sort of at our halfway point through Philippians, I hope that we're encouraged. I hope that we're encouraged as we do a study like this and spend time each week working through, whether you're here this week and just sort of joining in on this study midway for us, which is fantastic, or have been plodding along with us the whole way, that we're learning what this book of the Bible says, that we can walk away and say, I don't just have some general idea of a smattering of verses here and there, but I, I'm getting a, a, a good idea of what the book of Philippians says, what it teaches me about myself what it teaches me about the Lord and about how I can relate to Him. So that's what we're trying to do. And we're doing that not you know, out of just some interest of our own to do so, but because we believe that God has inspired His Word, that it comes from God. And because it's from Him that we want to understand it, we want to apply it to our lives. And so we look at it in depth and we also look for God to teach us through it, and for there to be a pathway and a trajectory of that particular message of a book of the Bible. So let me just take a second and remind us, being at the halfway through Philippians, where we have come. First part of Philippians in chapter 1, we were reminded that there is this thing called the gospel, called the gospel, which is God's grace and peace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he sent his son to pay for our sin and to restore us into right relationship with him. The Apostle Paul tells us as we walk through that that affects us as individuals, but then by the time we reach the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, we discover it affects us as a body of believers as well. That the gospel is working in our lives, God's grace and peace, to bring us together to one another, to unify us. We saw in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, maybe four weeks ago now, the supreme example, the supreme model and means for us to move towards unity, for the, the gospel, for God's working, to bring us closer and knit us together to one another is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ, who let go of much of the prerogatives and privileges of his heavenly status and took a lowly form as a man and went to the cross to pay for our sins and then was raised up to glory. Then in the last couple of weeks, we saw, began to see what that means for us. That means uh, not that we just sit back and put it on cruise control, but that the gospel's transforming us. And so we're going to work out our salvation, as Philippians 2, 12 through 13 told us, even as God works something in us. And then last week, we saw specifically targeted one area that is so dangerous, so destructive, so contrary to walking in this kind of unity that God calls us to, that we needed to focus in on it, this issue of complaining and arguing and complaining and grumbling, and that instead we're called to rejoice in the Lord. It's with all that in mind, then, that we come into our verses for today, Philippians chapter 2, and we'll actually dip back into a part of the passage we looked at last week. So we'll start in verse 17, and I'll read to the end of the end of the chapter, to verse 30. And what we'll see here is now Paul taking this same reality, this same theme of how we are to live out the transforming work of Christ by following three specific examples that the Philippians were familiar with personally. The Apostle Paul himself, Timothy, a gentleman who worked with Paul, helping many churches to be established and to grow, and then a guy named Epaphroditus, which we don't read much, if at any, at all in the rest of the scriptures. But he was a man from the Philippian church who had been sent to help the Apostle Paul, who we'll recall was in prison when he wrote these very words. So stand with me as I read aloud and you read along with me uh, silently. Uh, these verses we stand in recognition and honor of God's word and see what it teaches us about these model Christians and what we're called to learn from them. Starting in verse 17, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you, or we could say send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have had sorrow upon sorrow. I am all the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, 
risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You may be seated. And as you do, let's take a minute and pray again and ask the Lord to direct our time. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would direct us now as we look at your word, that you would be our teacher and that you would instruct us today just as the Philippians were called by Paul to be instructed by these three model Christians, that you would instruct us today, challenge us, encourage us, and equip us to live in a way that's pleasing for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chicago White Sox pitcher Eddie Sicott drew his arm back, took a step forward to the front of the mound, swung his arm overhead, and released the second pitch of the 1919 World Series. It appeared to be a wild pitch, striking Maury Ruth, a batter for the Cincinnati Reds, squarely in his back. But in actuality, that pitch was a signal sent to the various gambling interests and other deep pockets who were invested in what would become known as the Chicago Black Sox scandal. Sickot threw that pitch to notify all those interested and invested that indeed a number of the players on the Chicago White Sox team had agreed to follow Sickut's lead, to work against the interests of the team and to serve merely their own interests so that they might throw the World Series against the Cardinals, against the Reds. The news of this traveled eventually and was discovered. The movie Eight Men Out, if you've ever seen it, tells the account of these players. I'll list a few of them for you. Chick Gandle, Lefty Williams, Happy Felsch, Swede Rydsberg, and even Shoeless Joe Jackson. And, of course, Sickot himself. All were banned for a lifetime from the game of baseball for colluding in this action. Well, in their somewhat defense, we have to acknowledge that they played for one of the most stingy owners and difficult owners, Charles Comiskey, in the sport of baseball. And at the time, you could not be traded to another team, so they were stuck with that situation. But regardless of what their reasons were, they exist today in the sports world as the supreme example of team betrayal, of corrupt leadership on the team, and of downright selfishness. So we think about this team, and we look at what the Apostle Paul speaks to us about in these verses today, about these men, these three men, Paul himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, and about their willingness to personally sacrifice, 
to work as a team to lead God's people to exert influence for God's kingdom. The contrast is clear for us, isn't it? When we think about our own lives, however, and the life that we tend and the attitude we tend to bring to the church community, it looks a lot for us often more like we're members of the Chicago Black Sox team. We don't step up to lead and exert influence as God has called us to. We often fail to pursue serving sacrificially for one another. And even when we do, it's real challenging for us sometimes, I dare say it, even in the church family, to really work together as a team. So we want to look at this today and see what God's Word has to teach us about it. If you look in your worship guide, you can follow along with me. There's a section uh, almost to the back of the worship guide for you to take notes. And I think what we see is the main idea in the verses today is this. That Christ is transforming us, that we, transformed by Christ, are called to be maturing Christians, to be growing in this faith that we've embraced so that we can lead and serve as a team for God's glory. Now, it needs to be said off the bat that just as we saw in the case of the Chicago Black Sox with their owner, Charles Comiskey, their leader, their boss, was one who was stingy, who withheld from them. How much different, how much greater difference is there between that and our God, our Lord, the one who directs us, the one who we, if you will, play for? The Lord God pours out His own Son for us, lays down the life of His own Son, shows us grace and mercy, that's favor that we don't deserve, piles it abundantly upon us. He's no stingy, uncaring, unkind businessman. It's exactly the opposite in His grace and kindness to you and to me. Because of that, because we have that kind of boss, it's with this in mind that the Apostle Paul calls us to embrace the transforming work that Christ has done in us and to live this life of serving, leading as a team for God's glory as a church family. The men mentioned in this passage, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, we're all transformed by the work of Christ. So if we want to try to do this thing of leading and serving as a team for God's glory, we're not going to be able to do it without God's power. All these men were transformed by Christ. Think about the Apostle Paul. He had made a virtual profession of going around and rounding up Christians and seeing that they were put to death for their faith. Acts 9 tells us that God encountered him and so transformed his life that he walked away and became one who was willing to give all that he had to see that God's kingdom would expand. So the Apostle Paul knew about being transformed by Christ. Timothy as well. We don't know as many of the specifics of how he actually came to salvation in Christ. He actually had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. 
But we know from Acts 16 that his mother read to him, taught him the scriptures of the Old Testament. And surely that had to have been a foundation for a transforming work in him. He was so committed, dare I say, that as an adult, he received the sign of circumcision. A Greek man received the sign of circumcision so that he could connect with every church that he went to, to the Jewish churches and the Greek churches. That's what I would call being all in, folks. He was transformed by Christ. Epaphroditus, we know, was transformed by Christ. If you look back with me at the passage we've looked at this morning, this again is a man that the Philippian church sent off to Paul where he was in prison. This guy left whatever, his family, his job, his home, to go and be with the Apostle Paul in prison. It says in verse 30 of Philippians chapter 2 that he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, risking his life. These are men that have been transformed by the work of Christ. And what I want us to think about first and foremost today, before we get into any of these details that we're going to touch on for a few minutes, is this question of being converted versus being transformed. These men, certainly each one, had experienced some understanding that Jesus had come, that he had died for them, that he had shown his love, that he'd reestablished their relationship with God through his grace. But they didn't leave it there. That work transformed them. They moved from a place of ambivalence towards the kingdom of God to zeal and passion for it. And I know for a fact that I'm not there like I should be. We need to pray that God would work His grace in our lives in a transforming way. Way And sometimes it's going to feel like I suspect it was for these three model Christians we're talking about that it's two steps forward and one step back. Two steps forward and one steps back. It's not always going to be a straight and perfect line. But part of what is implied in these verses today is that we would be looking looking at model Christians like these guys, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, or looking at people who are around you that you see at a point in their faith that you would like to be, and asking God, would you do a work not just of conversion, but of transformation in my life? I really want to be transformed. What did that work of transformation mean for these three men? And as a result, what does Paul say it should mean for us? Three things, and again, these are found in your bulletin if you want to follow along the notes. The first thing is that it it means a call to leadership. And let me say right off the bat, because I know some of us here will say, well, you know, not everybody has the gift of leadership, and that is exactly right. Just like not everybody has the gift of administration or mercy or evangelism or whatever you want to put in that blank. But the reality is that all of us are called to show mercy and be merciful people. All of us are called to share our faith, to be evangelists in that sense. And likewise, all of us are called to some level of leadership. And I want to define it in in this simple way today, influence, exerting influence over people around us. And if it's Christian leadership, then we might say exerting influence for the kingdom of God. Looking at our lives 
and asking, how does God want to use me in this setting, my workplace, my neighborhood, my family relationships, as a parent, as a spouse, to lead, to help exert influence for the kingdom of God. We see that the Apostle Paul wasn't afraid to even call others to follow himself. Philippians 3, verse 17, we didn't read it for this morning. We'll get into it more in a couple of weeks. But he says, brothers, join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. Man, is that a scary verse, isn't it? To come to somebody around you to maybe uh, seek to exert influence, to invite them to come to church. Or maybe you're seeking to exert influence to help shepherd or lead a life group in some way. Or maybe you're seeking to exert influence to organize a mom's group in the neighborhood where moms can get together and just talk and share their burdens. It's putting yourself out there when you say, I want to seek to lead something, even if it's just a small thing. Let me encourage us today, folks, to just seek to take a next step in this area. Don't look down the road necessarily and say, I've got to do exactly what these guys in the Bible did. That's not Paul's point, that we've got to be willing to do all that these guys did. But what it means for us is being willing to take another step, to take a step to lead. Second thing we see in these verses, and really the crux or the core of what we want to talk about this morning Look with me at verse 20 is this idea of serving. And we'll see just here briefly that these guys, Paul, Epaphroditus, Timothy, they served sacrificially and they served sincerely. Sacrificially and sincerely. Look at verse 20 of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. What's so special about him? Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now, whether you're kind of young in years or you've been around the block for a while, you've probably all in here been around a while enough to realize that it's pretty rare for someone to genuinely care for us. It's pretty rare. And it's a pretty special thing when we encounter someone like that. Likewise, we recognize how difficult it is for us to seek, and hopefully we're not trying to muster it in our own strength, but to seek to genuinely care for other people around us as well, isn't it? To really care what's happening. So there's a sincerity to Timothy. Verse 21 as well tells us that, he's, that the others seek their own interests, but he seeks the interests of Jesus. Here's the beauty, folks. When we seek to serve sincerely and sacrificially those around us, our spouse or our family or our coworkers or our neighbors or someone even that we don't like that much, guess what? We're not really serving them first and foremost. We're serving the Lord Jesus. We're serving Him. He's the one who's working through us. And it does require sacrifice to serve. We can't do it. We can't serve one another in the church body and look out for each other's interests and be genuinely concerned without sacrifice. Verse 17 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, I'm poured out as a drink offering. 
He's saying he's ready for his life to be poured out for others. Now, when I try to do that, even the little bit that I try to do it, I get exhausted right away. I get worn out with the needs of other people. It's overwhelming. So how did Paul seek to do it? Well, we're reminded in the Scriptures elsewhere that where he was weak, God was able to be strong. We've got to have God's strength to be able to serve in this way. Question for us this morning, looking at these model Christians, what will it look like for us as a body of believers, as individual people, to be transformed by the work of Christ, relying upon the power of God to become genuinely, or should I say much more, genuinely concerned for the interests of one another, for the interests of those who are visiting, for the interests of those that our church family is touching in the community. It's a beautiful thing. God does that work. So we're called to lead. We're called as well to serve. And you have a couple of comments on in your worship guide if you want to to look at them. One of them I'll say before we move to the last topic of doing this all as a team. Uh, Philip Brooks, if you'll follow along with me in your worship guide, said this. I thought this was pretty helpful before we move on from this service topic. He said to be a true minister. He's not talking about somebody with a title before their name like me. He's talking about just ministering, serving to others. He said to be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. Both of them forever deepening and entering into closer and more inseparable union with each other, the more profound and spiritual the ministry becomes. The man who gives himself to other men can never be a wholly sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. Kind of verbose, I know. What's he talking about there? He's saying that if we enter into the needs of other people, if we actually seek to care about one another and know and ask and be concerned what's going on in each other's lives, two things are actually going to happen. One is our gladness is going to increase because we'll be connected deeper as people seeking to walk through this life and seek the Lord. But we'll also be brought some sadness. Because when we know and see and experience other people's burdens, it weighs us down. Isn't that part of the reason that we stay clear and don't want to move into each other's lives is because we don't want to experience that. We had uh, just a touch of it uh, this week as a church uh, at our church office. We had a woman a week and a half ago or so that came into our office and this it's not a normal occurrence, but it occasionally happens that somebody comes in with some particular need. It appeared, and she stated that her husband of seven weeks had been greatly mistreating her. I was out of town. Uh, thankfully, Harrison was there and talked with her for a while, counseled her, and we prayed. We've been praying and so forth. Uh, this Thursday, I was walking out of my office to go to the front of our office space. And there this woman was. She was in tears. 
She looked huddled over and genuinely upset. She was headed to the Bessemer Courthouse to get a restraining order. We handed her some tissues. We prayed with her, and she needed a ride. And so we had our office assistant, Christine, drive her over to the courthouse. Christine arrived that afternoon at 4.15 back to the office after being at the courthouse for a while, and she had two words to say to me about the woman we were seeking to help. She's a crook. (laughs) She's a crook. The woman in some delusional state had thought that perhaps she could go to the courthouse and get away with all of this. Immediately when Christine dropped her off, they put handcuffs on her. She was wanted in several states for a variety of crimes. Thankfully, we hadn't done anything beyond just counsel and prayer and so forth. I know I felt like a total goober for having been lured in by this whole charade. I mean, Harrison and I were in tears comforting each other because of all that was happening with this woman. So, and I, you know, sent, sent my uh, ministry assistant off with a convicted felon. That's always good, too. So, anyway, um, you know, when you try to help people, when you try to be sincerely involved and care about people, Sometimes you get burned. You absolutely get burned. And you can't, you know, what are we going to do tomorrow or next week if somebody walks in the office? we got to try to help that person. You know, you can get a little wiser, you can get a little more savvy, but what are you going to do? Are we going to really remove ourselves and put ourselves in a little bubble so we don't reach out just because we've been burned? We've all been there, I'm sure, in some way or another. Apostle Paul is telling us, by God's grace, we can move out. And we can move into each other's lives even in a way where we might get burned. But hopefully, we'll also have some of the gladness of being able to genuinely help one another. Last thing I want to say is that these guys worked as a team. And it, it's kind of woven through all these verses, but I just want you to see it. Because this unity issue is a big thing for us. And when you try to do the things of building and extending the kingdom of God, it's tough working together sometimes. Even when you're locking arms together, we frustrate each other. We have difficulties with each other. I just want you to see the relationship that these guys had by God's grace. Verse 20, look with me there again. Paul says about Timothy, I have no one like him. Verse 22, he says that their relationship was like a son to a father. That's the kind of closeness that they had working together in the kingdom of God. Look with me at verse 25. He talks about Epaphroditus, and he says he's a fellow brother and fellow co-worker and fellow soldier. These guys are fighting together. They are part of a team, a division being deployed to do the Lord's work. And then verse 27, he's describing Epaphroditus being ill, and he says that if I had lost him, I'd have sorrow upon sorrow. These people aren't loosely connected to one another in the work of God's kingdom that they're called to. They are linked together. Their arms are connected. I'll close with this quote that I think is found in your worship guide as well. As we think about all that we have talked about this morning and receive one last word of challenge related to it. Motyer, a commentator, says this, None of this 
what we see in these model Christians is automatically going to be true of us as Christians. We do not always love one another, nor are we always ready to acknowledge one another as fellow workers and soldiers. We sometimes, in fact, look at each other with suspicion and hold each other aloof. There are Christians, even, who begrudge the gifts God has given to others and are afraid that praise deserved by a fellow Christian might threaten their own prestige all too often. Self-concern dulls our hearts to the needs of the church Our eagerness is directed to self-advancement, and our anxiety diminishes only as our personal security increases. Then listen to this final challenge. The apostolic standard, which is the standard of Christ for leading, serving as a team, is a target we have not yet reached, and one which we are not even concerned often to hit. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we praise you and thank you that you call us out of ourselves. And part of your working in our lives is to knit us together, allow us to work for the things of your kingdom in a way that we serve one another genuinely and we figure out by your grace how to do that, locking arms together as a team. Oh, Father, we want to be used as a church body to extend your work in our city and around the world. And we need your strength to walk in the pathway that you would call us to. Lord, give us a heart to aim for that and to seek that, to be different people because of your working in our lives. And, Lord, we confess to you that we fall short. We thank you that you are gracious to us even in this attempt. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.